Welcome to the Turfgrass Hotline, brought to you by our partners at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in a single pass. And our partners at Intelligro, manufacturers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. Welcome to the Turfgrass Hotline, Clint Maddox from Oregon State University. Clint, what was the winter of 1819 like relative to weather and disease pressure? Hello, Frank. Thanks for having me on TurfNet. It was actually a really late winter. It was really dry. And so we actually didn't think we were going to have a lot of uh, what we actually like to call microdochium patch out here because we actually don't get any snow cover in our neck of the woods. So uh, when we have this microdochium nivale fungus that's attacking our annual bluegrass plants without snow cover, we like to call it microdochium patch. But as you saw at our um, field day, February 28th, You actually came just a couple days after the snow melted, which was really rare for us. Uh, So we had a really late start to winter, but then winter really hit hard. Uh, We had almost seven inches of rain in the month of February, which was nearly almost an inch and a half to two inches more than normal. And then we had a lot of disease coming in for the end of the field day there. Um, So my microdokey patch was really, it was intense. And we end up getting kind of a bimodal cycle of microdokey patch where That first hit of microdochium patch will start at the end of September. And then when the weather gets really cold, the humidity tends to drop. So the microdochium patch isn't near as active. And then we get that humidity starts coming back up in the end of January and February. And we get a lot more disease, which is what you were able to um, share with us at our field day this year. So that sounds like it's ripe for a lot of diseases. Do you have, obviously you don't have enough snowpack to get gray Uh, snow mold. But do you get other diseases with that kind of pressure? Because, you know, what we see back east is now a much more common brown ring patch. uh, And we're seeing different diseases, different cool weather diseases, even under very wet conditions, pythium root rot. So what are you seeing? Is this creating a Petri dish for other issues, Clint? Well, at this time of year, uh, in the transition from the end of the winter to the um, early spring where we get all that humidity, uh, we do tend to get a lot of yellow patch or what uh, we call cool season brown patch. And our main disease out here are going to be microdokin patch in the winter. We usually get a lot of yellow patch, which we then would recommend superintendents at that um, first spring or the maybe the last microdokin patch application to maybe use a fungicide mix with uh, perhaps uh, propiconazole works well with a heritage. So we can kind of get microdokium patch, yellow patch, and get ready for our anthracnose season coming into the spring. We do get gray snow mold on the east side of the Cascades, which, you know, is not where our university research station is, but we do do some gray snow mold research over there. This year, unfortunately, um, I was saying we had this kind of late winter. And what actually happened, the ski resort areas on the east side of the mountains got a really late snow and then it melted and then it froze. And we actually had some turf grass loss over there. And unfortunately, our gray snow mold trial in a fairway site uh, was actually um, completely destroyed because of the uh, just winter, um, just the ice cover uh, damaging all that annual bluegrass in those fairways. You know, my old pal, Tom Cook, was talking to me about for the brief moment I had with him during your field day, 
And of course, right away, we started talking about lawns and what happens ecologically and, you know, what would it be if we didn't do anything? And can we get some freeze of clover out again? As you know, any conversations with Tom, one of the things he did say is the dry periods are getting more intense uh, during the season. You're going longer periods of time without rainfall, which is creating some drought stress, maybe that the plants aren't necessarily used to. And I would suspect annual bluegrass doesn't like so much. So number one, are we right about seeing it drier? And number two, is that creating uh, more stress than we used to see? Well, I tell you, the best person, uh, you know, like you're talking about Tom Cook, um, We, I get the privilege of having a journal club with Tom Cook once a week. Hmm. And there's nothing more entertaining or more fascinating to talk about turf lawn ecology with Professor Tom Cook out here. Hmm. I mean, I've only been out here for about six years, but one of the most fascinating things about our area is that it typically doesn't rain, if at all, more than one day. And that's just like a little shiver of a bit of a rainfall in a, about 90 days. So it's really dry and it's really hot. And a couple things come on with that. Um, namely, I mean, to digress a little bit from the diseases for right now, because that's going to ultimately lead to anthracnose. What it also leads to, unfortunately, are a lot of fires in our region. So we end up getting these really odd weather patterns where maybe even the fires are clouding out the sun a little bit and the weather tends to even maybe not be as intense as far as the light intensity will go. And so that may even provide some relief. But unfortunately, the golf courses often have to close in some of those mountain resorts just because of the fire dangers and the the air quality. It's interesting to hear you talk about that because I remember a few years ago, I got to visit interior British Columbia and you and I actually interacted about something funky that was happening up there. The fires we're actually creating an increase in humidity in the mountainous regions uh, inside the Okanagan Valley. And that was leading to diseases that they don't normally see because it's a northern desert. Uh, essentially, the Okanagan Valley right. is a northern desert. And so the smoke from the persistent fires in 2017 was leading to significant increases in humidity Is that happening to you during those dry periods as well? Because that's going to raise the overall heat stress if the humidity is increasing and the plants can't breathe when they're getting hotter. Well, we definitely hear from superintendents out in the eastern part of the state or down in the southern part of the state where there's more of the fire damage that, you know, it's becoming more challenging to manage their putting greens and their turf grass sites. Um, I don't have any data on their humidity and things, but I can definitely speculate that that would be happening. And certainly the air quality, the light quality, the predictability of managing turf becomes more of a challenge in those sites. And we're unfortunately probably going to see another fire season come up mm-hmm. soon. It's, this is one of the driest uh, end of Aprils I've ever seen, um, mm-hmm. even though we've had that flood about two or three weeks ago. It hasn't yeah. uh, really rained since, and it's really you know warm outside, 70s in the afternoon and 40s in the morning. And if we see some really hot weather come up here in the month of May, um, we can expect an early an early anthracnose start as well. So superintendents are starting to be concerned about that. All right. So perfect. That's the great transition because when we left off disease, you were talking about how many people will be making their transition from microdochium patch. They'll maybe have some yellow patch issues and they'll make an application. 
Are you suggesting that most of the anthracnose programs that you guys work on are actually starting now out there? Well, not typically. Basically, what we see is May is very important for what the anthracnose season will look like when summertime comes. And so Brian McDonald, the research assistant out here, which I know you've worked with extensively, he's kind of our expert in anthracnose. So I was giving him a a few questions about, you know, his fungicide program, because my specialty, of course, is microdochium patch. And he was, you know, really saying that we need to look at these May weather, especially when we get a couple or two or three days in the 90s which would be really, really warm for our area out here, that the annual bluegrass just tends to be stressed. And then if that does happen, then maybe we should do our applications for anthracnose more towards the start of June, as opposed to maybe the third week of June, which we would typically recommend uh, for our anthracnose first application. Are those same types of programs? Uh, I'm hoping this is one of the questions you asked Brian, and I got to get Brian uh, on here as well. Are the programs that work back east ones that work for you as well? Well, I'm not familiar with the programs out east, but we're getting a lot of good results with the triazoles, like propiconazole always has worked very well. Our heritages, our insignias, daconil, of course, clarothalonil has always been a base product uh, when we're trying to keep the anthracnose down using those contact fungicides so we don't have to worry about resistance issues because we have seen some resistance issues with the strobulurins or the thiophanate methyls already and we want to make sure that we use our other products as diligently as we can. Is there any reluctance out there to use the DMIs, the triazoles during the summer months when they could cause some growth regulating effects or do you use ones that might not cause those effects? Yeah, that's a great question. And I would say, yes, there is some hesitancy to think about the use of DMIs, especially when they're using other growth regulators such as Primo in the summertime. But the Banner Max or the propiconazole tends to be one of the DMIs that is not as injurious as the other DMIs would be. But we have seen some differences in how DMIs work. And actually, Brian really is interested in this subject. And so around field day, which we typically have in the month of August or early September, he often does a demonstration trial where he will apply Primo down one side of a green and then do a strips of different DMIs where the superintendents can see what two or three applications, uh, you know, every three weeks of those DMIs would look like throughout the course of the summer, which of course they probably wouldn't apply the same DMI every three weeks anyway. But it does give you some indication of what those differences would be. And Banner Max tends to be one of the safer DMIs that we can use on anthracnose out here. Well, let me wrap up our quick conversation, Clint, with one final anthracnose question. And that has to do with I know something that you've sort of dedicated a lot of your work to, which is alternative to traditional chemicals. And of course, when it comes to anthracnose, a lot of that has been done at Rutgers and indicates uh, cultural practices from you know, nitrogen fertilization and mowing to maintaining top dressing. Is it your sense that the problems we're having with anthracnose out there are from folks that still might not have learned those cultural lessons? I would say that is accurate. We are trying to do an anthracnose study here in Corvallis. We basically do what Clark and Murphy tell us not to do. So we're stopping our nitrogen fertilization, we're mowing much lower than we would be recommended, and we're trying to dry out the turf. And so just like you're saying, and just like Clark and Murphy and the Rutgers groups and all those um, great grad students have gone through there in the last decade, 
have shown is that superintendents who see anthracnose are recommended to increase their nitrogen application frequencies or a nice soluble nitrogen between a tenth or a quarter of a pound of nitrogen every two weeks to you know try to raise those mowing heights and to just have a consistent amount of irrigation throughout the summertime, not to let it to be too wet or too dry. And research has shown that if you just you know mow a little bit less often, integrate rolling into study, maybe use a growth regulator, you can tend to get really good green speeds without having those dramatically low heights of cut, which is where we end up seeing anthracnose when we get called in or just superintendents are, are maybe mowing a little bit too low, a little bit uh, too aggressive on those low heights of cut and just aren't applying very much nitrogen. And so unfortunately, that's where we see the anthracnose and, and we always recommended to follow the Rutgers program. Thanks very much for joining me, Clint. It's always a great joy to chat with you, pal. I wish you nothing but the best for the fire season this year, and we'll be thinking of you. And if we'd like more information about the Oregon State University Turfgrass Program, how would we go about doing it? Is it as simple as Googling Oregon State Turf? Yeah, we're at uh, horticulture.oregonstate.edu forward slash beaver turf. Ah. So if you Google beaver turf, you should be able to get it because our mascot is the beaver, of course. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. All right, Clint, thanks a lot for joining me. (laughs) Thank you, Frank. It was a pleasure. And thanks to our partners at DryJack, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in a single pass, and Intelligro, manufacturers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. I'm Frank Rossi. Thanks for joining us.